Are you in a closet? <laughs> I am always in a closet. <laughs> always, uh, literally, never metaphorically. Everywhere that I stay, I'm like, hi, can I just plug in in your driveway? It'll be no problem. I can use the washroom if that works, but if not, I can, you know, I have other solutions. But uh, I am going to need to be in your bedroom closet at a certain point because that's the only place that Emmanuel feels that the sound quality is good enough. Yeah, the visual I have right now is Liz's <laughs> face with a microphone and above her, the bottom edges of clothing hanging above her head. Apparently, this is the spot to be for the acoustics. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yay. Way to go. So, so did you do your homework? Did I do my homework? I can out-homework you any day. For context for our listeners, we met with Emmanuel, our editor, who is also Anne's son, and he agreed with me about everything about the podcast, which is... Except for the things that you were wrong about. <laughs> I took notes, and the notes say he agreed with me. Mm-hmm. And that he agreed with me, but you've conveniently edited that out. But anyway... So you came. So we're not supposed to script nearly as much. We <laughs> That makes it really sound like we've been polishing this somehow. <laughs> Emmanuel said, we are like two geese flying through the air, and we just have to find a pond on which to land, which I found to be... I I thought I heard him say you are two goosey gooses <laughs> flying around looking for a pond on which to land. Which, when I have said that to people, I have said that to most really? people. I don't know what the context is that that comes up. <laughs> that I said, you know what my kid said? My kid said, you are two goosey gooses flying around looking for a pond on which to land. They're like, that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a question. Under my notes, under that, it says, Anne is goose with stabby knife. Do you have any idea what that refers to? Oh, I totally know what that refers to. What does that refer to? When we were going to Elliot, the theme of the camp was birds. <gasps> okay, and, maybe that was coincidence. And I was... But how did you know about the stabby knife crow? Okay, so I was... No, I didn't know about the stabby knife crow. It, this is a different so this is story. coincidence? Different story. Okay. Okay, 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 okay. okay. Go. So Go. <laughs> I was, I'm a good rule follower. So I was looking at ways to participate in the theme. So I had mm-hmm. bird earrings and stuff, but I ordered a couple of... The theme was birds, people. Birds. And I have raven earrings and I love magpies. So I got a magpie shirt with dressed in, you know, Christmas lights <laughs> and... Um, it was Christmas. But I thought, now what birds would be really appropriate for us being Canadians? I thought, oh, we need Canadian geese. And so when I went looking for Canada geese stuff, you know, <laughs> swag, goose swag, almost as one does, almost all of the goose swag is about stabby murder birds. And so because Canada geese are stabby murder birds, Canada geese are mean and their beaks are stabbers. But the stabby murder birds thing actually mm. comes from some story or series or movie or something. And they're so the all these images, <laughs> just Google Canada geese and stabby murder birds. And you get these images of mean, (laughs) angry, vicious geese, which they are. They will defend their territory fiercely. They are also really tasty, so I don't think this always works in their favor. But anyhow, (laughs) I was saying how hard it was to find something with Canada geese that was not stabby murder birds. But then the joke was on you because the official mascot of the camp was, in fact, a stabby murder crow. It was. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> like it was a crow from the dollar store with a knife attached to its little paws because... I don't know the paws. Because <laughs> I think it was there was apparently leg. a crow. Okay, yeah. 
there was a crow that was like the mascot in Vancouver that everybody loved this crow and followed it and blah 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 and apparently one time it loved to collect shiny things as crows do it stole the murder weapon from a murder investigation right there's a and news they- clipping of it with the knife <laughs> from the from the murder investigation so that was like the camp mascot and when we left they gave us t-shirts that had a crow holding a knife which I'm so excited to wear everywhere so far exactly. I've worn it at my sister's house and nobody has asked me any questions which concerns me a little yeah maybe they're just, just assuming that this fits your story somehow and maybe they don't want to know don't ask Auntie Lizzie her answers right? are always very long I I say that to Lori all the time she'll say well you know I tell her something about one of the kids and she'll say well what are they going to do about that and I said I didn't ask because then I might have to be involved in the solution they also gave us each our own dollar star crow Yes, which was hard to get home. It Mine got a little bit crushed. But I am keeping my t-shirt, even though the dollar store crow has seen better times. My Elliot crow is up on the top of the shelf in the dining room right beside my beautiful um, Alara gave me magpie. Aww. They are the same size-ish, so they're being Corvid buddies in the dining room. You had so many birds. I was so impressed. I had serious bird (laughs) I did. Raven earrings, flamingo earrings. So have you forgiven me? Two geese making a horn. Have you forgiven me for slave driving you at Elliot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. We have to work anything out. So on the first night, people, everyone came up and said, we're so excited to hear the story of the Hysterical Society and all your jokes and stuff. Which was very kind, but it was not what we had planned for the program for the next day. So I'm like, Anne, we have to fix this. Get into the room. Stay up till all hours of the night. Practice your jokes. Practice your jokes. Practice your jokes. So we were presenting for, what is 75 minutes at a time, three mornings in a row. Yes. Right? To a group of people who had come to Winter Elliot, which is a camp in Washington State. And the thing is, the people... There were very few people who came to Winter Elliot for us. A couple did, though. Thank you, guys. I think they enjoyed <laughs> us. And we had some lovely, lovely folks who said, we're fans. But, and we, that's what tipped us. And it might have tipped some people into coming who were on the fence. But we had people, a few people who actually traveled because of us. Which we are grateful us. for. But most people had no idea who we were. <laughs> Most of the people at Elliot come because it's their tradition. Yes. Right? This is a thing they do. They come year after Who year. Wouldn't? They, they are winter it's Elliot so people. It's lovely. <laughs> it's very lovely. So I want to make a shout out to Gavin yeah. and Eva, who are the deans, were the deans for Winter Elliot, just for that one. And they were lovely and they were great to work with. And they were Everyone really was nice wonderful. So we'll just put that in there. And Chris and Carrie who picked us up at the hotel and brought us over and fanned all over us in the car, which was really a good, nice, sweet way to start, (laughs) right? To have people say, we really love you and we can't wait. But also, then we were like, oh, crap. We didn't actually include all of that. Every day we would present and then we would spend the afternoon and much of the evening with me forcing Anne to rewrite everything over and over and over again, which I always thought of myself as like, a lighthearted fly by the seat of your pants type person. <laughs> That's what I would have imagined, but that is not what happened. <laughs> yeah. So interesting, though, I think one of the big things. So we've worked together on things like the Crack Cup and we've planned services in person and online and we've planned murder mysteries, in person pranks, when we were 
church ladies together. Petty right? crimes. Those are the capers. Petty. Mm, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you didn't know they were petty crimes at the beginning, anyways. <laughs> Until afterwards, right? We've done things together, but we've never presented in this fashion, mm-hmm. this format together. And we had a really solid outline for the first two days and a looser one knowing that we would need to respond to how the first two days went for the third day. So we knew there would be work on the third day, but we'd never done anything this specific (laughs) before, right? There was always a lot of, in case you've been listening to the Crack Cup nonsense. And editing. There's always been editing. (laughs) And we really, we had goals. We had plans. We wanted to hit some targets. And we realized that there had to be a lot of movability, right? So we've never worked that way. But here's one of the big things I realized. So silly me. I had my outlines with space for notes. (laughs) Print, huh? Printed Did you? on paper. Why would you do that? Why would you use paper? I love paper. Uh-huh. And I speak from paper. I love cherry pie, too, but I don't write my sermons on it. It's just not feasible. <laughs> so usually what I do if I was giving a sermon is I would write it on my laptop and then I print it on paper with some spaces on every page so I can make How some orderly. pen marks. And... I put it in a binder so it can't fall down and I number the pages so nothing can go wrong because I'm anxious about like if I was to use my laptop or use a tablet or my phone, what happens if, you know, you hit a button and it scrolls to the end and I was like, and then I've got to stand there and get the whole thing to come backwards to where I was speaking and find my place. I never lose my place more than a sentence or two on paper. Mm-hmm. So I had it all printed out, the outlines, because we work from an outline and we tell some stories from our brains and our hearts, not just, we're not reading the whole time. Um, and I had it on paper, but when we reworked and rewrote everything, I used up every scrap of paper I had with me. <laughs> I wrote on the back of my schedule, on the back of my boarding pass, because yes, I also print that on paper. On what the... I, well, good thing you did, I guess. Right? I used, seriously, three pens. Liz was already in bed one night when I'm knocking on our adjoining door and being like, I need another pen. You should have asked me for paper, too. I have a crap ton of paper, and I never, ever write on it. I just carry it for security. I made it through. I made it okay. through. But it was true that every day Liz would say to me, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Do you hate me? Will you forgive me? I won't, I won't do it to you again today. And then she I won't. Again and again and again. <laughs> and I couldn't tell if you were like fine or if you were mad at me but knew we had a thing to do. So you were waiting to express the extent of your unhappiness till the thing was done. Which is what I would have done in your shoes. And now are you waiting to see if I'm going to express the extent of my unhappiness? (laughs) I was... Yeah, no, I think if you were going to, you would absolutely let loose in the middle of the recording of the podcast. So I think we learned a lot about how each of us works and how we work together. nice way to say it. And (laughs) I learned never again to travel without my laptop because when we made... You should have used my iPad. I could have used my laptop. You could have used my iPad. Yeah. This was the kind of problem I could have solved, Anne. Yeah, there's probably an app for that. (laughs) 
There is for word processing. Right. Absolutely. So, while we were talking, Liz would be madly making notes in her in her, her laptop, and I would be <laughs> making notes on paper, and then I would sit and write it out longhand, which actually gives me a really good product because longhand works your brain in a different way than typing does. Yeah. I was really happy with what I did. You were great. The fact that we would meet revise the plan and then two hours later you would come back and say nope we need to do it again because we revised it twice every day because it had to be the very best it could be and a i think we had a great product and i'm proud of what we did b the two a days i remember um my kid's dad talking about in football at the start of the football seasons they would have two a days where you would do the drills like twice a day instead of once a day and it's really brutal it's really brutal Two-a-days is hard, especially longhand. So I will bring my laptop next time and a thumb drive so I can take it to the office and print it on paper. So does next time mean you will do it again? Because I have a bunch of ideas for things that we could do next. (laughs) I love working with you. I thought it was a lot of fun. I'm so glad. And it was really cool to be displaced, to be in a new location like where it's just oh, I loved Elliot. You know, reality is suspended to be in this lovely place. It was nicer weather than it was in Saskatchewan at the time that we went to it was Washington beautiful. State. Beautiful, and it was such a wonderful community. Like mm-hmm. camp creates community in a different way that church does. I've been giving a lot of thought to this. So, John and I were at Nest Creek staring at the fire in the summer. And Nest Creek is a festival. I, a music festival. I don't festival. know anything I else. I love Nest Creek. Okay. It's in Oh, that explains why people were playing music. So we were <laughs> at this place. Oh, dear. <laughs> we were looking at the fire. And we would sing the songs and dance, and it was fun. So John says, you you use don't really believe in God. So we'll... Which is a gross generalization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> many, many you use totally do believe in God. Thank you for your disclaimer. And during podcast editing, <laughs> Manuel was like, Liz, you need to just... Be more of yourself. Unleash yourself on the world. I'm like, but I don't know about... And he's like, don't worry. Anne will cool off your hot takes. <laughs> and then I go... I went and I looked up what a hot take is, Anne, and I'm so excited. I'm going to do hot takes all the time. <laughs> Anyways. So Emmanuel said that my disclaimers were part of who I am, and you should stop saying I can't have any. I don't remember him saying mm-hmm. that. It's in my I notes. remember him saying... Actually, you know what? I was grateful for your disclaimers at Elliot because every time, like, plow ahead, plow ahead, tell a story, whatever, and then someone's like, oh, you didn't think about this part. And then I'd be like, and now we have Anne. <laughs> Anne? That is my specialty. Please help me. Exactly. This is how we expanded into a broader realm. But when you need apps, you come to me. It was great. Right. Okay, so take us back to Nest Creek. You oh, yeah. and John are at Nest Creek, where incidentally there was music. <laughs> right. Yes, that's it, because it's a musical festival is what I learned. So we're staring at the fire, and John says, I don't know why you use do their UUism at church. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you are from the Christian tradition, yeah, you have to meet on Sunday morning. But the things that you use want to do is mostly talk to each other and have sing-alongs. <laughs> and he's like, right. that seems like what you do at camp. And I thought, oh my gosh, could you imagine crafting worship services always around a campfire? Like a million times easier. You don't have to say anything intelligent around a campfire because it's a campfire. So it feels like a worship. And John's like, and you could do weed <laughs> camp. You could do, <laughs> see, these are my more honest There can be drinking. <laughs> yeah. There could be all of these, I mean, and also non-substances. I'm not saying 
that you have to drink. We don't believe in communion. You don't have to drink as part of your religious experience. But there's more opportunity for conversation and for walks in nature, which are a huge part of you using. And I'm like, now I'm really big on this whole, as we adapt into the future, what if we thought of camps as the way that we practiced our religion instead of churches as the way that we practiced our religion? What do you think? You know that there's been UU camps for like, Decade. I know, but I just found out about it, so it's okay. new. <laughs> Canada has Unicamp. And Actually, it, okay, um, I have been going to camp since my children were little, <laughs> but I'm engaged in reframing, Anne. I'm having a moment of reframing. You just didn't think about it in that same context, right? I thought of it as adjacent to the thing. I didn't think of it as the main thing. But my most profound experiences have been not necessarily co- summer camps, like communion was a bunch of us get together in a church basement for a weekend. But they've been live-in experiences more than Sunday mornings, for right. me personally. Right. And I think this is more parallel to what we think of as youth culture, where yeah. youth comes together at a con, a conference, um, when adults are gathering and sitting in an orderly fashion discussing things using polite <laughs> um, structures. And, uh, okay, we don't have gavels, but we might as well. And mm-hmm. the youth gather together with their sleeping bags and stuff. They usually camp in a church. Yeah. And they sit in a clump. And they decide what they're going to do and they shape it the way they want to shape it. And it really is like camp, except it's at a church. Exactly. And it's way more participatory. Mm -hmm. And like not there's four people at the front of the room leading all the stuff or who have already made the plan for you. It's more we make it up as we go along. Mm -hmm. And I would venture, having never been a youth in our movement, but having been adjacent I would venture it's much more feely yes. than a lot of the adult stuff. A lot of the adult stuff is more thinky. Yep. It's not to say adults don't have feels and youth don't have thinks. Yep. But often I have, and they, they leave exhausted because they stay up all night <laughs> and they do stuff all the time. And if you're ever driving kids home from a youth con, um, they sleep <laughs> all the way home. So you need to not have the adult youth advisor driving the van because they oh my also God, need no. to sleep all the way home, right? You need an adult who's been at Thinky Camp. Who was sleeping during the program because (laughs) you can see where my bias is. To drive the van home with all the kids, right? We don't want to have any tragic, nobody slept and now bad things happen. And it is often the case, I hear adults when they're saying, so tell us about YouthCon. What did you do? And the kids are all lit up and excited. And they're like, we did this and this and this. And then we made worship together. Well, how did you do that? Well, we just all sat around and decided what we were going to do. And there was, there might be movement. There might, you know, activity, all kinds of things. And the adults are like, how come we don't? Yeah, mm-hmm. that. I was like, um, that's camp. We could do it, Anne. We could do it. So here's what I think we should do. And those of you who know Anne, you should send her messages convincing her to bend to my will. So I think that... Or condolences, <laughs> because now you're going to tell me what we're going to do. We already send you condolences. So what I think... Oh, if it were true. ...we should do is we should come up with ideas for, like, a camp program and then get people to come and, like, rent out a camp space, once on each coast and once in the middle, as, like our thing that we do next year we could get grant funding to help underscore the rental of the camp and we could get andrea to do like the logistical stuff once i ask her but she doesn't listen to the podcast so i think we're good and then we could apply for a grant and we could do it and it would be so great wouldn't it Anne? Anne, wouldn't it i think that's a lovely idea have you ever run a retreat have i ever done any of the things that we do together (laughs) one of the magics of us being the presenters at Elliot was the only thing we had to do 
was present. Well, yes. I, I do see what you're saying. We ate the food that somebody else uh, caused to occur, and we slept in the nice rooms that somebody else made nice for us. And this is where Andrea comes in. <laughs> she can do anything. And there were oodles of volunteers who ran all of the things, like almost every position with with the Elliott camp is run by volunteers. Are you saying that so Andrea couldn't do all of those jobs? Andrea could do all of those jobs. You probably don't want to break her in that. That's fashion. true. She is in charge of the finances right now. <laughs> right. She's requiring some effort to take over from when I was in charge of the finances. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I have I have run retreats and gatherings or done the food or things for all kinds of things. Like back when I was in belly dancing, I did all the meals when we would have workshops nice. and bring in famous belly dancer teachers. And I don't want to do that anymore. Okay, so we need to find people who are already doing logistics, like church retreats or whatever, and we'll, we will go in when someone else is doing logistics. That's what you're saying? Right. Okay. One very sweet thing that happened <laughs> when we were there was somebody, like the people were lovely. It was they so were lovely. Cool. And I uh, we heard that the program was well received, and we can talk about that in a minute. It was, I think, it was a good experience all around. Yeah. But somebody came up to me and said, "So, where are you two off to next? Like, what's what's your where are you presenting next?" And and I froze in that. Um, do I tell them? Do I tell them? So I'll confess it now. I just said, "Oh, um, you know, Liz is on her like world tour of Unitarian Universalism in North America, and I have a full time job. So this is it for now." What would be the more truthful answer is this is the first time we've done this and we don't have anything else booked. Everything else we did was a murder mystery right? or a petty crime. I loved I loved that we were received in a way that people thought we do this all the yeah, time. Yeah, that was great. Right? That was very satisfying. And I think the podcast has a lot to do with that. And I'm we've done, sure. you know, online services through COVID where we have Fair negotiated enough, yeah. who will do what and cause things to occur. I My favorite thing that people said back to me of what you said that I thought was so cool was the thing you said about research mm-hmm. has become part of like just became part of camp language and is now part of my life. This whole I am engaging in research business, which I think you should tell the podcast people. OK, I'd be happy to tell that story. When we were planning this, our theme for Elliot was changing mm-hmm. our stories. And the whole point of the whole thing was our lives. We we carry our lives <laughs> as stories, right? There's stories we tell about ourselves, what we think other people tell about us, all these kinds of things. We carry these stories. And so we talked about can you change them and how that mm-hmm. might be helpful. And so one story that illustrates that in my life was – when I was struggling for years um, to try to figure out how to find peace around food because I felt really compulsive and out of control and embarrassed and ashamed, and I just felt like I had failure after failure after failure. And the more you feel like you have failures, the more you feel like you are a failure. Mm. And it really escalates inside, right? So inside of me was this big ball of shame, and it made it really hard, like, to eat around other people because you know how some people are with uh, peanuts or potato chips? It's like, I have one and then I have to eat the whole bag. I am I can be like that with a bunch of things. We were like that with blizzards, I remember fondly. <laughs> <laughs> 
thank God we bought them in singles and not in six packs, right? But sometimes we went back. Sometimes. Actually, we mostly had ice cream sandwiches, which is smaller and more manageable. But you do get those in a box of eight, which isn't really helpful if you're trying not to eat eight. Um, No shame. If you want to eat eight, go ahead. So... (laughs) I had no peace around food, which made me feel out of control, which made me feel ashamed. And it was this desperate spiral that was shaping who I was inside, which was broken, felt broken. Mm -hmm. And then I read this piece by um, a physician who said that you, if you think about things that happened before as failures, you use them to beat yourself, right? So we use them like a bludgeon. Mm -hmm. We beat ourselves like it's a stick. And instead, he was recommending that we think of the things that have happened to us in the past that didn't work out as research. Mm. So now, all of those, you know, 4,000 programs that I tried, the ridiculous, the seemingly reasonable, all these other things, um, all these ways I tried to manage my stress and anxiety that didn't get me a result that I wanted their research that gets me closer to the result that I want. So I like to think of it like when you're trying to invent the telephone or you're trying to harness electricity, like hundreds and hundreds of tries where you pick up the phone and there's no dial tone, right? It doesn't ring. The message doesn't travel. We don't think of those as failures. We think of those as experiments that they did that gets them closer to knowing, well, that doesn't work. So that's one less thing on the list. It's like if I told you there was a key hid under a rock on this rocky beach. If you flipped over the first rock, you wouldn't go, I'm bad at looking for keys. You'd be like, one rock down, only 80 million more to go. Exactly. And you don't keep turning over the same rock over and over again. (laughs) Going, I'll try harder. I'll have more willpower. Which is a practice I had. um, (laughs) I I, I could have patented it. I mean, like I had become an (laughs) expert at the turning over of the same rock, maybe smashing it on the side of my head, putting it down and trying (laughs) again. I don't think you know how patents work. You have to say this is a problem I am solving in a certain way. You you have to have something be useful to be patented. Right. I could have just been the world expert in... Bad, bad rock key management. So perhaps I am niggling your patent knowledge. Continue. It's okay. I think you're right. Oh no! Don't don't cut that out. <laughs> Take that out. Emmanuel says I'm right about everything. Okay. Well, I guess that has to stay then. <laughs> I went for supper at his house and I was all excited about. I was like, and you said I was right about everything, and he's looking at me like, mm. <laughs> I love that boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was so much fun going for dinner. Yeah. Shut up. Sorry. Oh, and we took pictures. Yeah, I'm not sorry at all. We took pictures of me with the baby and sent them to Anne. Anne, who has not yet (laughs) met the baby. I thought you went one time. No, we got COVID and had to cancel our flight, which has still not been reimbursed by insurance. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. No, we have not met the precious baby. Well, you know, it's just a baby. It's not adorable. (laughs) It doesn't have a cute baby smell or anything. She's fantastic. It's mostly... It just sat there, the baby. <laughs> All it did was drool. It ate once. That was it. Now, didn't miss now much. we'll see how Manuel edits you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the research story. Yes. You feel like you need to say something. <laughs> because I just, I have found this, not only was it hilarious how everybody was 
every time they messed something up, they would go, I'm engaging in research. A bunch of my stories began with, and in this time in my life when I was engaging in research. Also, like, since then, I've been thinking about it a lot. Like, there are swaths of time in my life where I was trying to be something that I wasn't or going in a direction that wasn't really me. And I've always thought I wasted so much time there. Right. And now I started thinking about it as research, which was very helpful. The other thing, it was not pleasant. (laughs) It was research. Now I know that there's no key under that rock. (laughs) Just a scorpion. So so that was helpful. The other thing that, that was like a theme that I found really helpful was you kept talking about like which stories serve you and which stories don't serve you. And I've been thinking about that an awful lot. Because Mm -hmm. I sort of straddle this like tech bro kind of (laughs) culture of like, this is how to make it an entrepreneur and spirit, spirit, rah, 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 competence thing, productivity Mm -hmm. culture. And then you, you culture, which is often about, well, different things are hard or ADHD culture. You know, it's really hard (laughs) for you to do this and blah, 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 blah. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. Right. And... One of those is helpful when you need to feel included and you have a pain you're working through and you need gentleness and kindness. The other one is more helpful when you're trying to get something hard done, (laughs) right? So I've been really intentional about thinking, which story am I surrounding myself with and how is it serving me, which has been really, really helpful too. Awesome. Awesome. It meant the world to me. Like I said a couple of times there that if we had only had, if I had only had five minutes that's the story I would have told. Which one? That the research. Oh, yeah. No, it was the hit. Total hit. Yeah. But it was the story out of the three days that I felt was most important. It was on day two, I think. And I just. It was also the one I had to bully you to tell because you were like, oh, I don't want to say that people should lose weight if they don't want I know, to. And I, was I know. Like, right. But if they do want to, it's their body and they should do whatever the hell they want with it. I have a. This is one I of my hot takes. I have had a whole revelation about this, you <laughs> monster, for dragging that out in the way that you did it. <laughs> Um, And we will talk about that in another episode. It's going to need a whole episode because I have a whole revelation about why that was angstifying (gasps) for me. Yeah. I want to hear your revelation. Nope. You have to come back next month. Uh We're going to forget by next month, Anne. I am never going to forget this revelation. Okay. You're going to forget I had a revelation, but then you will poke me about the story again and then I will remember. If the podcast after this one comes out and you did not remember to talk about your revelation, the listener that notices gets what from you? Put your money on the table, bucko. Gets to say to Liz, ha ha, you're wrong. That is not a good enough reward. (laughs) Not, ha, you're wrong about Liz. Oh, you mean if you're right. Okay, fine. They can tell me I'm wrong. It doesn't cost me anything. (laughs) They get to tell you you're wrong. Well, now I'm sounding mean. I'm just saying. Do you know, when when I was expecting Emmanuel, pregnant with Emmanuel, I knew it was a boy. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. 127%. Uh Uh-huh. And I would say to people, you know, we have a boy's name picked out. I know it's a boy. And they would say, well, what are you going to do if it's a girl? Like, they got that compassionate and then scared look in their faces. (laughs) Then we changed the plan. Like, are you going to break when this baby comes out? And doesn't have, you know, seemingly boy parts. And I said, you can have it. You can have it. That was my response. You can have it. If it comes out and it's not a boy, it's not my kid. Because I know my kid. I didn't have any preference. It could be he could be anything he wanted. Still. But I knew it was a boy. He is listening. I did not. <laughs> Disclaimer. Did not. Whoever you want to be, Emmanuel, is fine. I did not have that. <laughs> and if you want to lose weight, it's your body. <laughs> 
monster. I did not have that certainty <laughs> when I was expecting Casey. So I didn't say that. Like, it's not like that's mm-hmm. who I am. And I always think that. So I would say if, if it comes out and it's not a boy, you can have it. Because that would shut them up. Because they were really giving me a lot of grief <laughs> and it would shut them up. And they would look at me like I was the most horrific creature in the universe. But sometimes you just know something. I love the idea of what are you going to do if it's a girl? Like, it's not like any of the things that you had planned for a boy baby are any different from, like, maybe the nursery's the wrong color, but the baby doesn't give a crap, right? Like, you parent a girl baby pretty much exactly the way you parent a boy baby. I wonder if they were just underestimating the stability of my mental health. Like, if they were thinking (laughs) that I was attached. Well, you did. Offer to hand them your that baby. Came after. <laughs> so I'm glad you that solved that. After. Yep. No, that will have t- taken care of that problem. I think they thought, you know, either that I was so attached that it had to be a boy, which I was not. I would have been happy with any live well baby. But then if I was certain it was a boy, what was going to happen to me if it came out and it wasn't? And, and I felt like <laughs> you are underestimating me both. When I tell you I'm 100% certain, that doesn't happen very often. Where I would, like, stake my life Uh on the truth of this thing. Arguably, though, you didn't have information on which to stake your life. Like, just from a scientific viewpoint. I would have staked my life on that. I was dead certain. Which I could have been, I guess, if I was wrong. What a dumb idea to stake your life on that. We're making more Uh, of this than it needs to be. Um, But also, I think they were more worried that because I was so certain if it wasn't a boy, then something bad was going to happen, right? Like I was going to be all broken or sad or disconcerted and I was supposed to be happy. I was telling everyone I would be heartbroken if my children were a boy and nobody was concerned to me about it at all. I was like, if it's a girl, its name will be Patricia Valley. If it's a boy, it will be Olaf Pig Pig because I don't want any more boys. I already have two. (laughs) That's what I told everyone. And then when Eric, who, spoiler, is a boy and so is Anthony, uh, went on to like form a blog when he first figured out how to program when he was 12, he was like, my name is Eric. I was supposed to be Olaf Pig Pig because my mom didn't want a boy. And then that's it. He didn't blog anymore. So like, if you Google Eric James, that's what you find. Which doesn't make me look so good. I know it's not all about me. It's his blog. But really, I mean, come on. Oh, my goodness. I'm like three seconds from the snorty kind of laugh. That's funny. You're more amused about that than I would like you to be. Where is your empathy? Anyway. (laughs) Where's your ministerial presence? I'm very certain I will not forget this. I have also written down revelation for next month's recording. So (laughs) that seems oddly nonspecific. Revelation for next month's recording will not help you in a month. I know I've been there. Okay, I made a specific note. You forget I'm the one who does remember. You're the one who writes things down. I am. And knows where they go. Oh, you think you're the one who remembers? Okay, that's a whole other story. That needs its own episode. (laughs) (laughs) So if I only had five minutes, I would have told that story. Really? Because it took 36 minutes to tell just now. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Continue. I may have interrupted you. (laughs) What I love is that the one story that really mattered to me Because Mm -hmm. it really did change the trajectory of my life completely. And I apply it to everything. Now, you know, there was a purpose for it Mm -hmm. at the time I learned it, but I apply it to everything. And it is my tool for reframing. Like, how are you carrying this? And is that helping? And if that's not helping, how could you reframe it? It doesn't have to be as research, but how could you reframe it 
in a way that it is useful to you instead of being a punishment. So the mm-hmm. best thing that happened for me at Elliot was when not only did people come up and say, do you know, everywhere I go, people are saying research. And I would just smile and be so <laughs> warm and fuzzy inside. I was so excited. But then people would come up to me and say, you know, the research story mattered to me for this reason. I'm not going to tell their stories here. But for this reason, and a couple of them were really profound things for them. Like they said, yeah. I like something that I've been struggling with for a long time. I feel like... I'm going to be able to put it down now. Oh. And to me, like that is the most miraculous thing. Not only to be able to help someone, but to feel like the work you did yes. helped uh, more than one people. And be able to have... And I love hearing that you've been thinking about it. And being able to have a conversation. So every Sunday I preach at a different congregation. And then you like stand at the place to go out and they say thank you this was really nice and some people like have a really strong expression on their face like this was really really helpful right which is affirming but there's nowhere to go right someone shakes your hand and says this service was really meaningful and they maybe can tell you a sentence or two but then the next person is coming so right there's 25 people behind them it's you can't make a friend or have a relationship or a conversation and I loved that we got to sit with people at every meal and have like an in-depth conversation about what was going on in their lives and respond to that in the stuff we were writing and rewriting and rewriting right I loved that part right we we made a point speaking of meals to um Always sit at a different table. So the first meal we had there, we sat together because like everybody else, we are also anxious and self-conscious and don't know what to do with ourselves. And we were new in an unfamiliar oh my God, place. Yeah. So we sat together. People are so How friendly. does it work? How does the food work? I don't know what to do. Am I supposed to get up? I, I don't know. You stick it in your mouth with a fork. And Sorry. Yes. So there was that. But then we said, okay, now these are all nice people and this is an easy place to be. So, so nice. they made it so welcoming, right? That's the culture of the place. You have a little red dot. Go to Elliot. There's a little dot that and says you're new and then everybody's super nice to you. On your name tag. Yeah. That's right. So, which is removable, so you could have peeled it off if you didn't <laughs> want anybody to know. But they all know because they come every winter to Winter Elliot. I've never seen her before. Um, but then we decided we would sit at different tables from each other for the rest of it so we could spread our experience around right Mm -hmm. if somebody wants to talk to Liz or somebody wants to talk to me or we could hear from different people and it was really fun I tried yes that was really fun right there was there was a couple hundred people there and I tried to sit at a different physical table every meal as well as at tables with different people it was really really there was such a good idea because when we sit together we mostly say to each other stuff (laughs) most of what you have to say I've already heard and most of what I have to say you've already heard so splitting up was really smart and then I started to worry people thought we were fighting which maybe (laughs) we were you were gonna tell me by the end (laughs) we were not fighting it was hard and I was very tired by the end but I booked a day off when I got home so that I could fall down because I didn't get home until like one o'clock in the morning the day I traveled and then I booked the next day off so I could fall down and sleep and rest which was really helpful so I have a thought about the research that just occurred to me okay so when we talk about stuff you often point to what I did in my career of like try a bunch of stuff and most of it fails but some of it works yes and you're like, how is it, Liz, that you are so comfortable with failure? And right. then we try and come up with reasons why I'm comfortable with failure, like magnitude of experience or whatever. 
And I can never articulate why it is that I am comfortable with failure. I would like to turn it on its head. First of all, the person to explain how to be comfortable with a failure is not the person who came out of their mother's belly already comfortable with failing. That's not how that works. Just like the person who's really good at math is not the person to explain how to do math. Secondly, I don't think it's that I am that comfortable with failure. I think it's that you've always been particularly uncomfortable with failure. That's what I think. I th- so then I would say, why do you think that is? And how did you learn not to? I guess you've sort of already answered how you learned not to do that. That's one of the tools, right, that helped me unlearn it. Yeah. Um, I think we have actually talked about this a little bit. That for me, it's a cultural thing. My generation is trained to be perfect. It's trained, right. like I don't release anything into the wild until I feel like all the commas and dots are in exactly the right place and I'm convinced it's already completely finished and done. And the whole idea of having something be beta and sharing it with the world and they can look at it and have input on it is like terrifying <laughs> to me. I am the person who teaches myself how to knit before I go to my first knitting class, right? Because I don't... <laughs> what a waste of time! Right? I don't... <laughs> I don't want to be anxious not knowing what to do. I've learned uh, CPE, my clinical pastoral education in ministry training, was partly responsible for that because we are forced to do what they call experiential learning, which means you have to make yourself vulnerable and learn stuff in front of all the other people. And they put if you don't put you on the spot, they put you on the spot so that you can learn mm-hmm. how to do this. And that has helped. I'm never going to be comfortable feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, as as far as I can tell, it hasn't changed. <laughs> I would like to think I could. I don't want to write that story, but I don't expect it completely. But I've stopped feeling like that means something about me that isn't true. Like my showing up not perfect or not finished or not getting it exactly right. I would think this tells people that I'm lazy or I'm stupid or I'm something. I never want anybody to think those things about me, so I have to make my best effort before I ever release it. And part of what I've learned is that um, I don't do my best work independently. Nobody does. Right? Because when we're in when we're in a battle over what comes next <laughs> i learn something and you learn something and i give up on something and you pick up on something like things we happen. really wrestled about what was going to go in the content yeah. we argued and fought <laughs> okay i have another question for you okay <laughs> oh okay but i would like uh when you said i'm the one who forgets things i would like to point out that it fell right out of your brain but my thing i've been waiting to say and i've held on to it the whole time i blame okay. the menopause <laughs> So, oh, oh shit. <laughs> now this whole thing has to stay in because it just happened to you too. No, no, it's okay, okay, I got it. It's back. It's back. It's back. Okay. So, when I talk about like being failure friendly, I do workshops with congregations and I talk about, you know, approaching things as an experiment, blah 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 blah. And they say, "How do you create a culture of failure friendliness in your congregation?" Yes. And I never have an answer because it seems, how would you not, right? What would you say? What should I be telling them? I'll tell them the rock turning research story. I can, yeah, Uh, the rock turning and the research story. I'll say, when Anne had a right to do whatever she wants with her own body because it's hers, (laughs) that's how I'll start it. You stop doing my disclaimers. It just makes them even sadder. Um, there was someone who came as a, as a member to Westwood for a while who used to talk about how she had, th- in her previous life before she came to Edmonton, had mm-hmm. thrown failure parties. 
And so <gasps> I know I can see the lights coming on in your <gasps> eyes. She would invite people to a failure party. I'm guessing it involved a lot of alcohol and snacks. And but that they would, <laughs> this gets they better would get better. together. They would sit around and they would tell failure stories. Now, I think that there's a culture of this in ministry, too, sometimes in secret, never spoken of places. I think ministers get together and tell disaster stories. And they, yeah, they totally do. Even I know that. They try to outdo each other, right? Like it's a competition. <laughs> it's the who can tell the bur- the worst story of failure. And I think what happens is that if I get up and say, I failed at this thing for like 25 years and then I learned a thing and it helped me and I'm still a mess, but it helped me and I'm better. Um, but you mm-hmm. don't even need the trailer on the other end. It'd be like, okay, let me tell you the most embarrassing story about the time I showed up for the thing and my skirt was tucked into my underpants and everybody saw my ass and I thought I was so professional and they're clapping and clapping. It turns out they're clapping for my ass. And, and Which is nice. That's nice. So if, you know, if you're the person with the with your skirt hiked up or the toilet paper trailing off your shoe, in the moment, that's awful. But when you tell the, well, well for, for regular people. It depends people. on how excited you are about telling funny stories. Right. right, right. I once ripped off my entire leotard in the middle of a training, trapeze training session. We were in this country where... Um, People, it was uh, Thailand or something. It, I don't know. It, we're in a resort, but there's this, you know, trapeze experts teaching us, and they're trying to be very respectful because there's a race divide in mm-hmm. a first world. So, and uh, I said, the problem with this trick is every time I do it, this happens. And I pitched forward, got my pants caught up, <laughs> and then ripped them off and fell off the trapeze. I was wearing a leotard, so I didn't flash anyone. And they all looked at me, and like everyone froze. And I was like. It's okay. You can laugh. And then they just lost it. Right? I'm like, I see. This is funny. But the whole time, I wasn't thinking I was humiliated. I was thinking, oh, my God, this is the best. I hope someone got it on video. So this is the ultimate in reframing, right? If you think about when something, especially that is, like, not within your control, right? The pants rip. They're stuck. It's not my fault I ripped off my pants. That happens. Exactly. To everybody. Well, (laughs) Well, everybody on a trapeze. That one trick, like you spin around and it catches your belt loop. It happens to lots of people. Ever going on the trapeze, but for multiple reasons. <laughs> so when you tell this story and you tell people, like, you know, people want to laugh, but they are trying to be yes. polite and you tell them they can laugh and then they laugh their guts so, out. It's like a gift to everyone so you how can, hilarious you I am. You can imagine failure party. Where yeah. somebody tells a story and the people kind of go, <laughs> and he's like, no, no, it's okay to laugh. And then they laugh. And then the next person is like, oh, you think that gets a laugh? Wait till I tell you my story. And it turns into a gift. And it's like Fight Club, right? It's like, who's got the most ridiculous story that we can tell here? And now I can go into churches and I'll be like, I'll do a workshop. I'll do a Sunday morning service and I'll do a failure party. Right. It doesn't, I can imagine that it doesn't always work brilliantly because I'm sure there could be times when somebody tells a really, really sad story, not understanding that we're going for the release instead of the heartbreak sympathy. I'll do it with Jess Rodella's I think that's a great idea. I hear they're They're wonderful. They're up for anything. (laughs) They are. So when you ask me the question, how do we raise that? kind of openness or that kind of culture shift in a congregation I wonder if that isn't an option right I think that's what we're doing oh yeah we're telling stories to people 
often about the things we have messed up that got us. Many of the stories you told at Elliot are stories of, and then I learned this important lesson, and then someone else made the lovely product, <laughs> right? Or, you know, and it shouldn't have been me doing the talking. It should have been Anthony. And look at the beautiful video about Anthony, and they all cry because it's really precious. <laughs> when I learned, I learned in the congregation at Westwood early on, I said something about, okay, true confessions, I'm a lousy, I can't remember, re- recycler, composter, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just not good at this. Like, I want to be good at this, but I'm not good at this. And I can see that you are all t- telling, there had been a service on the topic, right? And the people are telling right? stories about being good at this. And I had ended with, you know, I, I'm not good at this. And <laughs> I'm really glad to be here with you because I know I'm going to learn some stuff. And I'll get better at this. And people came up to me afterwards and said, you know what? I'm not good at this either. <laughs> and I never told anybody because I don't want them to know because they're all good at this. And it's like we get this shame, embarrassment. Now it becomes a secret. And the things that have had the most impact or the most feedback in my ministry have been when I have shared my mistakes or I have shared my mm. lessons, like I, I messed this up, or I didn't understand this, or I didn't know how to do this thing. And people come to me afterwards and said, I didn't know either. And now I can think about this differently. <laughs> right? Well, that's, I think that starts to shift a culture. Then people can say, mm-hmm. I did it just because it seemed to be effective. But then I notice now other people can talk about their vulnerabilities. Yes. Right? It's a different and appear kind competent of by contrast. Now, if your culture is that when somebody does that, other people go, that's not good. Ugh. That's not going to work out for you. Right? No, it is not. I know that you were saying you didn't know if it was, co- I know this is not the point of your story, but I know you were saying you weren't sure if it was composting or recycling. I know it's recycling. Do you know how I know? How? Because when we developed the uh, Unitarian Universalist Indulgence, one of the core items of the UU Hysterical Society, <laughs> I originally made it as like a prize for some kind of competitive game. I used to do workshops years ago. Right. And you brainstormed the sins with me. Right. And you contributed, have placed in the garbage an item of a recyclable <laughs> nature, and also had heterosexual fantasies. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's a that's a good way to go backwards and remember the, how the story is. It's important out. to keep notes. I had you write down all your sins. So here is the revelation that fell out of my brain. Are you ready? Or it's not a revelation. Oh, you, story oh it came that back. Fell out of, my brain? of okay. course it did. I've had it written yep. on my piece of paper for like five minutes. <laughs> I, like I wrote it down when it came back so I couldn't lose it again. Oh, okay. When we were at Elliot and we're rewriting the things and rewriting the things. (laughs) Yes, yes. Move on to the next part of the story. What was really fun for me is like when we do this, we when we're doing this podcast thing, we're having the it has to be interesting. There has to be something Mm -hmm. meaningful we talk about, but it also has to be funny. They come for the funny. (laughs) You would say they they come for the funny. (laughs) It has to be funny. How is that going to be funny? (laughs) And. The funny switch that happened when we were at Elliot was when we were rewriting each day twice. Did I mention twice? (laughs) You would be like, we can tell this story and this story and this story. Because that fit with what the people were looking for Mm -hmm. or asking about. So we'll put this story, this story, this story. And it was me who would look at the outline and say, um, where's the funny? That's true. And it was me who was like, keep writing. This must be perfect. It was like we switched (laughs) spots. It was was. weird. I think... 
my guess is that it really meant a lot to you. It did mean a lot to right? me. And that that's what triggered that. I have always really wanted to go to, to Elliot. And I've also always wanted to do the program at a camp. The very first camp I ever went to, I was like, you know how people say, what's the job that you would do if you know you could succeed? I've just always yes. assumed that everyone wants to be both a rock star and a presenter at a Unitarian summer camp, but right. then nobody tries for those. <laughs> like those, those two, I think of them very similarly and stand up comic, but like in my list of things that I would be amazed to find myself doing, that's always been mm-hmm. a thing. So it's like, if I said to you, I don't know if you want to be a rock star, but I was like, you're going to do one of Rihanna's concerts. I think she's a rock star. <laughs> and yes. here you go. And I don't know if you want to be a rock star, but that there'd be a lot of pressure. What do you want to be? What's the thing that if that you assume everybody wants to be, but you would never even try for? Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> Maybe it's not rock star. Oh, it, I don't know who Rihanna uh, even partly, is. Partly, no. Well, okay. So <laughs> I think Rihanna is a pop star, actually, but I'm not dead certain because I'm six. Look who knows the difference between rock and pop. <laughs> I try. Okay. I try to be current. I really do. <laughs> okay. I just want to be relevant. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I just want to. Well, be are you on the wrong podcast? I, okay. I know. <laughs> I was laughing because when I was ten-ish, I was just mm-hmm. talking to Lori about how all the things I aspired to be when I grew up were things that I knew, like that, like a teacher. Yep. Or something. I didn't have a minister in my childhood. It was a lay-led right. faith tradition that I attended. If I had known about minister, I'd have probably wanted to be one since I was hatched. Oh, because it fits all. So the your version I like of rock do. star is minister. Well, when you think about, I, I'm I'm working on revising. when you think about all the parts like I can remember the day when I discovered minister was a job and it had all the things in it I loved okay so true confessions I love meetings I'm sorry I love meetings I love speaking and interacting with people so I always try when I'm speaking to get people to interact and like mm-hmm. respond I can I used to say that a lot at Westwood this is not a rhetorical question I'm gonna wait until you answer me <laughs> you but never just, say that when we're talking on the podcast Anne. there just isn't a problem <laughs> so but it's it's more than that it's the meaningful experiences in your life the hatching matching and dispatching right the births and mm-hmm. deaths yep. and weddings and babies and child dedications anytime and stuff people cry Anytime people come together for meaning making is my jam and coffee, right? What? I get to have coffee with people. I love, if if you ask me like, what's an ideal day? It includes going for coffee. And so having this broad stream of humans that want to go for coffee and talk about important, meaningful things. So all of these things, when I discovered minister was a job that people would actually pay you for, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to do this thing. For now. Because here it is. Um, when I, what I was laughing about before, though, is when I was 10, what I imagined myself being, because I didn't have a role model, but I was making it up from what I saw. You'll get it right away. I had a suit. It had a skirt, though, because I'm 60. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a suit, a briefcase, and tortoiseshell glasses. Now, if you're looking at me right now, I actually am wearing tortoiseshell glasses, tortoise but they're glasses. purple. <laughs> they're purple tortoiseshell <laughs> frames. Um, and people would listen to me. But, like, that's not a job. 
I know, but that's <laughs> if you said what's your perfect oh. job. I saw myself as some kind of professional that people took seriously. Oh, uh, you're like I will be a business person for my job. I'll carry a briefcase. Which tells you I'm I may have <laughs> not felt like anybody was listening to me. What? And at 12 I can remember thinking I could fix everything if you people would just listen to me. <laughs> Right? I had a lot more confidence at 12 than I did for many of the interviews. You had done less research. In, in between decades. The research has undermined your then, expertise then over I time. Then I did research for 50 years. And um, turns out, and turns now, out I have more of that tortoise shell briefcase confidence now. And I think that's probably why I wasn't worried about being perfect at Elliot. I was just worried about being thorough. Oh my God, I'm never worried about you being thorough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, wait. I have to take off this poncho. Um, And you'll be distracted even if... Emmanuel cuts my audio, so let's just give it a second. Sorry, Emmanuel. One sec. This won't take very long. I know how to do it. Okay, I'm ready. Tell the story. Yeah. Oh, you have a nice, you have a nice fuzzy on too. I have a fuzzy just like that. I wear it every morning.